Welcome to the Make More, Keep More show, an irreverent but never irrelevant show dedicated to all things money. Hosted by Ron Carruthers and Dominic Cummins, two guys with 50 years of combined experience in sales and finance and a lifetime of talking nonsense. Welcome everyone to the Make More, Keep More show. This is a show all about money. We talk about making it, keeping it, paying less than taxes, all sorts of things. I'm Ron Carruthers. My co-host is Dominic Cummins. He's on Instagram at Real Biz Advisors. And Eric, we are recording and posting this session. It goes up live um, generally on Monday or Tuesday on Apple, Spotify. And you can always find it at makemorekeepmoreshow.com. And today's guest is Lisa Gossweiler, who I was introduced to a few weeks ago by a colleague. For those of you that know, I've been in the college space um, because of my own background, even though my professional training was tax and finance, um, going back to the early 90s. And when it takes a lot to know something about that space that I don't know already, and Lisa not only knew something, she knew a lot of something, um, almost to the point where I was embarrassed when I was talking to her. So we <laughs> thought we'd bring her on to chat about student loan debt, particularly in light of we're in June of 2023, the SCOTUS decision about Biden's student loan forgiveness, that 10,000 or 20,000 will be dropping sometime this month. And um, regardless of how you feel about it, whether you're for it, against it, Lisa's going to bring us up to speed on what is available and what happens if it breaks either direction. So good morning, Lisa. Welcome. Good morning. To the show. We're super happy to have you here. I'm um, super glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, well, we're glad we got the technology work. It worked out. If you heard, I was even saying we had a guest in his 70s recently who had a little bit of trouble. We're like, she's not in her 70s, I don't think. <laughs> anyway. No, no, I had the wrong time. I apologize. It was my fault. Oh, no, entirely. it wasn't even that. It was not letting you join. It was like straight up Instagram. You you offended the tech gods and they were angry <laughs> with you and uh, preventing you. Or they were angry with us and not letting you on the show. And that's probably actually more likely. Probably. So anyway, welcome, Lisa. Thank Tell you very us, much. Give us a brief sketch of your background. I know professionally you're trained. You have another business or career, I, I should say. But this is kind of your love baby project. Tell us what's going on and how'd you end up being the guru of student loan stuff? So I am a 25 year pediatric physical therapist. I've worked in the medical field for all my life. And uh, when my kids started into the college space, um, maybe 10 years ago, I, I was just good at it. I enjoyed, I enjoyed all the application stuff. I was always in their portals in their high school. <laughs> so I, you were that mom. Yeah, we I got was, a name for moms like I was you. That mom. I, was not a, I was not a helicopter parent, but my daughter uh, would text me from school and she would say, stop putting in applications to other schools. I don't care if it's free. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Anyway, I was obsessed with trying to find the best amount, uh, you know, the best merit money all around. And I helped all kinds of other parents and it, I kind of just fell into this, uh, this situation that I'm in at this point. So, yeah. and by the way, every helicopter parent denies they're a helicopter parent. Just, just so you know. <laughs> well, so it's funny because my kids are are super independent. Both of them, both of them have graduated college now. My daughter, as of last weekend, and uh, but there's like certain things, like money things, that I'm like all in. That everything else they can take care of themselves. I, they can make all their own medical appointments, even though I'm in the medical field. But when it comes to the money stuff, I'm like, 
way too much in their business. <laughs> nice. Awesome. I love it. So how did you end up learning about the, um, about the actual loan component of it? Like what drew you over there? Just the extension of all the other stuff you were doing. So uh, we, we planned on using loans for my son and then he wound up with a baseball scholarship when he was, when he got into college. So we didn't nice. have to, but I did understand the process and I understand the, I understood the benefits of the federal versus private loan process. So when my daughter began school, I realized I was in a college funding group. We were helping people learn how to fund college, different ways of using funding for college. And I realized that we were lacking uh, an expert in the student loan area. So I started investigating it maybe two, three years ago. And I realized that there's not really that many people out there that are experts in it. There's not that many uh, learning resources for it. So I found a really good one, the CSLP. It's a certified student loan professional. And I became certified um, a little bit, probably almost two years ago. And basically, I just stay updated on the regulations. I've kind of immersed myself in the whole student loan thing. And for the last year and a half, it's been it's been a roller coaster ride up and down all over the place because of everything that's going on. But it is hard to stay up to date with the regulations because they change them so quickly. But it's it's a it's a fun area to be in, and lots of people need help. I get questions all the time from people, you know, out of nowhere, asking me all kinds of questions. So it's fun. It's a fun, challenging area. Well, and college is insanely expensive. I mean, it was, it was insanely expensive back when I would have gone to college right out of high school. It's even more insanely expensive now. Tell us a little bit about what, what, where does the student loan debt sit at right now? And how much, like, are, is the average student graduating with? So, you know, it's interesting. I, th I think that their numbers are somewhere around 30 that the average student debt, student is graduating with, but it really depends on if you look at the whole picture, because there's lots of students out there that start college and don't graduate at all. And then they wind up with like a smaller amount of debt, but not the resources to have a job to pay it back. And then uh, if they're going into any graduate program, there's an enormous amount of debt on that end because most of the graduate programs are looking at 50, 100 or plus K, like your medical professionals could have three, four or 500,000 by the time they finish. But um, I think one of the things that they're not including as much in that number is the parent plus debt. The, because for undergraduate, uh, for any of the undergraduate uh, ex experiences, the students can only take out a maximum of $27,000 over the four years. Everything else has to be taken out either by the parents or through a co-signed or, or approved private loan. So, uh, and that can be a huge amount of money. And like some of your Ivy League schools, you're looking at 80K a year and that could be straight out of pocket. So $27,000 isn't even gonna put a dent in the first year for a student. So do you mind, tell us a little bit about, you mentioned there's a different, I'll get my dog to be quiet. But, um, <laughs> while, before we do that, can you tell us the difference between the private loans and the federal loans and kind of pros and cons of each and, and dive into that? So the private lenders, uh, they have their own uh, approval process. So every single private lender that you go, that you would come across would uh, have their own approval process. They would probably do a full credit check. They're going to look at your debt to income ratio, which would just be how much debt you already have and how much income you have coming in. And most of the time, a student wouldn't 
be approved for a loan like that because they have no income, they would have to either get a co-signer or the parent would have to be the main borrower. And there's also not any protections. There's no like death or disability protection with most private loans. You might find some out there that have some protections, but typically it would be, you know, lender to lender. The, the federal student loans are pretty much across the board the same. All the borrowers have the same protections. Um, there's a cursory credit check. It's really just to make sure that you have a decent credit score of 600 or above. And I think that's the number right now that changes. But um, the, I think people don't sometimes don't understand like all of the paperwork that they get in the mail, any kind of unsolicited emails that they get online, those are all private lenders, even if it appears that they might be a federal lender. And all of the state programs are generally private lenders. But the, uh, the federal program is, is through studentaid.gov. Uh, you have to have filled out a FAFSA form both the student and the parent in order to apply for the federal money. And all of the application process for the parents is done on studentaid.gov. The application is right there, it takes maybe 15, 20 minutes. And you usually find out within, within sometimes faster, but within 24 hours, whether or not you got approved. And the students don't even really have to put through an application process. They do run a credit check on them, but as soon as they fill out their FAFSA form, they typically become eligible for those Stafford loans. And those are the student loans, just for clarification, that they can take that would total up to the 27,000 over yes. four years. Okay. And so those, those loans, the first year when they're a freshman, um, they have access to $5,500. That's where everybody starts talking about the subsidized and the unsubsidized money. But really, uh, it's $5,500 freshman year, $6,500 sophomore year, and then $7,500 junior and senior year. And it's some combination of subsidized and unsubsidized money. Yeah, and the difference, just so you guys are aware, is subsidized, the government's paying the interest for you until you graduate. Unsubsidized, it's accruing right away. Um, what about for parents? Is there a limit that the parents can borrow? So if there's not a specific limit, it's really determined by the cost of attendance of each of the colleges. So say they were going to a state college and the cost of attendance for the entire year for in-state was $30,000. You would take that $30,000 number and you would subtract the $5,500 that the student was eligible for in the Stafford loans and then any merit money they got from that and the remaining balance would be how much the parent could borrow, and that would be the maximum they could borrow. So say it's 20, 24500 if they didn't get any merit money, then the maximum that the parent could borrow for that, that school would be 24500 But for an Ivy League school, if, if you didn't get any merit money, a parent could potentially borrow almost up to the maximum that the school costs, like $75,000, $80,000. And there isn't any specific difference between one school and the other when it, when it comes to, this, to the U.S. Department of Education looking at it. They're just looking at what the cost of attendance is listed at. Yep, that's it. Okay, and that's sometimes why um, you guys will see if you look at the actual pricing, it, there is some padding on a lot of the math for the schools, they've got travel in there, they've got walking around money, they've got all of that. And that's the reason why is because that sets the limit that a parent can actually borrow. So a parent can send their kid to college for no money out of pocket. Yes. Fair enough to say, 
Yeah. Fair enough to say. Okay. So now, first of all, let's chat. We've got the Supreme Court decision sitting out there. Do you want to explain to them real briefly what's going on there and kind of just your personal opinion of which way you think it's going to break? Yeah, so back in August of 2022, uh, Biden got on Twitter and announced that they were going to have, uh, there was a bunch of different announcements, but one of them was that they were going to give uh, $10,000 across the board of forgiveness to any uh, federal student loan borrower who had uh, who had outstanding federal student loans. And there was income requirements for the 10K, but uh those income requirements, they were pretty generous. It was $125,000 for a single borrower or up to $250,000 of income for a family. And then for Pell Grants, uh, students who had a Pell Grant in their history, and it didn't matter if you only had $200 worth of a Pell Grant one semester, you would then qualify for up to $20,000 in forgiveness from your debt. And that included Parent PLUS borrowers, graduate borrowers, and student borrowers. So that was a big deal and people were really excited about it. But uh, within the first couple months, it did get um, quite a few lawsuits. There were a number of different, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there were a number of different people and different, um, <laughs> different groups that were pretty mad about it. Uh, I don't really, I don't really know um, from what happened, but this eventually it got fast tracked to the Supreme court. And in February of this year, the Supreme court heard the arguments, um, in my opinion, the uh, U.S. Department of Education's lawyers did a much better job of presenting their case. But really? um, yes, they did. They were much more succinct. They 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 were much they were much better at presenting their case. I'm not really sure why the um, opposing sides' lawyers did not do as good a job, but they did not. And at this point, um, up until maybe two weeks ago, I would have said that. Uh, there's almost no chance that it's not going to get struck down. But now, now that the debt ceiling legislation went through and that the payment pause end is tied to the debt ceiling legislation, I'm not really sure how how much anyone cares about the 10K and 20K right now. It might be more of a drop in the bucket and might not be worth the fight. So, uh, of course, it's in the Supreme Court's hands. So we should know within the next two or three weeks whether or yep. not it's being upheld. But I don't know how much the Biden administration is going to fight after this to continue it if it gets struck down. If yeah, and my uh, my opinion was simple. Do I lost the audio? Yeah, I did too. <clears throat> I think we lost Ron's audio only. But he doesn't okay. know that. Doc, Steve. <laughs> oh, wait, can... Am I back? Yeah, uh, you're now back. you're back. Yep. Am I back, guys? Yeah. Yeah. So I put my phone in work mode and my wife knows I do this every Friday, but my wife decided to call anyway. So uh, thanks, <laughs> wife. Uh, what, I was saying, what I was saying before, I was so rudely interrupted and I'll be in trouble if she actually hears this. <laughs> uh, I will pay. What I was saying is my opinion was simply that it would follow the OSHA mandate, which is they were fundamentally legislated, or, you know, the executive ordering something that wasn't legal and it was going to get shot down and my thoughts on it were simply congress controls the budget a president doesn't have unilateral power to change a budget like that for the same reason that trump couldn't just go build his wall and stuff that's my opinion but we'll find out in the next couple of weeks so um go ahead well it's, you know yeah interestingly they really 
I mean, that might be what they wind up determining it on. But what they were really more arguing about was whether or not Mohila and some of the other groups had standing. They weren't. They didn't even really get to the meat of that argument that you're talking about, which I, I too agree that they didn't, that that shouldn't have gone through that way, that the Congress should have controlled that. Because at this point, I don't think people really realize it, but every single month that the payment pause continues costs $5 billion in lost revenue oh, to, to the government. So it's a huge amount of money and, and people are, you know, people have been benefiting from it for 38 months. And there's a lot of student loan borrowers out there that probably couldn't have made it through the pandemic without that extra cushioning in their budget. But sure. I'm going to tell you, there's plenty of borrowers out there who have very high incomes who are also not having to make payments. So I don't know. It goes both ways. Right. I'll tell you an interesting story. Do you remember when, I don't know how long you've been around this, but do you remember when the federal government actually took over and the interest payments began going to them rather than the, to the actual borrowers? Are either of you guys no. aware of that? No. Dominic, that was actually in 2009. And because it was when Obama got in the office, they, there were about 36 companies that were responsible for administering these loans, and they were the ones collecting the revenue, but the loans were ultimately backed by the federal government. And Obama was the one who basically got rid of all them. Now they got a servicing fee, the couple that stayed, most went out of business, and they moved that revenue into the budget because that $5 billion was part of what they were using to fund Obamacare. And to, to explain, well, here's what we're using to make the Affordable Health Care Act affordable. So okay. that was an kind of an interesting move back then. All right. So what happens, in your opinion and on the research you're doing, Lisa, if the student loan debt get, goes through, the Supreme Court upholds it, what do you think is next for the, I mean, the Biden administration? versus if they shoot it down. So if the 10K and 20K gets upheld, and it, it should be with either next week or the week after that we hear, I would assume, I can't remember, somebody had published some dates that they thought it was going to come out. I feel like maybe it was Tuesdays that they think that the Supreme Court typically rules. But anyway, if it does come out and they do pass it, I think they're going to open that application back up on studentaid.gov and they probably, the servicers are more than ready to just start blanket forgiving everybody's application, all 16 million people who already applied back in October. In that case, you're gonna see cleared off of the books a ton of borrowers who only had $20,000 or less. So they're gonna clear off, if everybody puts through their applications, they're gonna clear off about 20 million of the 45 million borrowers that currently exist in the system because there's that many people that have a small amount of debt. And, and then they're going to be able to really focus on the rest of the people that are in the system. Because unfortunately, prior to COVID, there was a lot of people that were already in default. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to prevent that from happening when payments restart. So I think that if it goes through, they're going to clear off that debt. And then they're, everything, all the regulations for this new income-driven repayment plan that they announced at the same time as the forgiveness plan, they're going to stick with how that is on paper right now. And they're just going to try and get all of the borrowers into that new plan and get payments restarted in September without all of those 20 million worth of people that had that lower, the lower end of debt. 
clearing them out of the system. Okay, so that's if it breaks, mm -hmm. positive for that. And we'll come to back to the income-driven repayment stuff that currently sits there in a moment. What happens if it breaks the other direction and it gets shot down? So there's a couple different things that could happen, but now that the debt ceiling legislation is tied to the payment restart, basically that's the payments are gonna restart the beginning of September. And that's kind of set in stone, irregardless of what happens with the, the Supreme Court. So if it breaks and they say no, there is a possibility that the Biden administration and the Department of Education will try to get the forgiveness plan passed through another means. They could go through the Higher Education Act. They may try it through a different act because now the, the HEROES Act doesn't really apply anymore that the that the pandemic has ended, ended right. officially on May 11th. But uh, they may not. They may just let it go because they may want to start marketing their new income-driven repayment plan, which frankly is much more generous than 10 or 20K of forgiveness is ever going to be. Yeah, so let's, by the way, Dominic, did you want to say anything today? Uh, no, not really. No, I mean, this is an interesting, the conversation's interesting and the whole Supreme Court decision, I was reading up on it beforehand. It's kind of interesting because it's not necessarily specifically, I don't know if this is interesting to the audience, it's not really the Supreme Court weighing in as far as I understand it, whether the 10 or 20,000, it's whether he had the authority to act under what he right. used, what was the, what was the heroes or something to that effect, that mm -hmm. thing, whether it's emergency power, it's something that they Trump used and Biden used th throughout the pandemic. So it's, the question is, is whether or not that was legal. And I think that does open up some things for some fall. I still feel like there might be follow up to this, right? Because, okay, you shut yeah. us down based under that, but we have option B here, but you, you bring up an interesting point. Does he want to fight that at this point with elections coming up? I mean, there's there's a lot of how much of this is it going to be? It's going to be fascinating to see how it all shakes down. But that's all I yeah, have to say. And the borrowers kind of get caught up in the middle of it because of now, <laughs> yeah. well, now, so if the 10K and 20K forgiveness doesn't go through, but he tries to do it through another avenue, all of those 20 million borrowers are going to have to restart payments in September. Without, without that relief yeah so that what they were trying to do is they were trying to get it decided in their favor like their ideal scenario was that goes through they get that they get all those borrowers off the books and then when they start september 1st they only have the borrowers that you know they really need to work with on getting them into idr plans or borrowers who are paying back on the regular plan and they don't have to worry about all those people that might technically default so that's yes. where we are with that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and my 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 other take on why SCOTUS was going to shoot shoot it down potentially was because they did it under the Heroes Act, which went back to 9/11 and gave the president emergency powers in a pandemic or a, an extraordinary situation. At the same time, the Biden administration was arguing to end Title 42 yeah. in court and saying, "But well, the pandemic's over, so we can end this." But again, like you said, I didn't pay any attention to what the lawyers were doing when it actually was heard. So I had no idea whose lawyers did a better job of all that. Um, well, I'm well let me to the show, Dominic. Thank you for not reliving there. Well, let me let me mention something to Dominic though. So it's interesting. Like, oh, you know what? I lost my train of thought. Go ahead. No, please. You were gonna say interesting. No, I was trying to, but I forgot. I forgot what I was gonna say. Okay, now. I'll, so I'll, I'll remember it again. <laughs> come back to so for the moment. Come back to income-driven payment and explain how that works. 
because this is the area where I was straight up embarrassed. I'm like, I didn't know any of this and we do this. Talk to me. So income, uh, there's two ways to pay back federal student loans and it's entirely different than private lending. So the first way is the standard payment plan. And the standard payment plan means it's just like a mortgage. It's, it's an amortized payment plan. You take the loan balance, the principal and interest over the term. So if it's a 10 year standard plan, at the end of 10 years, you will have equal payments of 120 payments up until that 10 year time frame, and the entire loan balance principal and interest will be paid off. That is not how income driven repayment plans work. Income driven plans are based loosely on the loan balance, but the loan balance is in the background. They're based, the actual payment itself, the monthly payment is based on your income, your W-2 income, your pay stub income, or your self-reported income if you are self-employed. And the payment is based on a calculation. So in each different income-driven repayment plan, and there's a whole group of them right now, there's four, they're based on a certain percentage of your discretionary income, your AGI. Uh, it, it subtracts the cost of living adjustment, which is based on the poverty line for each state, and it includes your family size. So it's a, and it's not designed, the income driven repayment plans are not designed to pay back the balance of the loan. They are designed for forgiveness terms, either the public service loan forgiveness or the long term forgiveness plans. Okay, so. Assuming the majority of the people on here would not be in public service, what would that look like then for a normal family to get any sort of forgiveness on this? Like, how do those terms work? Well, so the way that most of the income-driven plans are work is that they look at the borrower's income to determine the plan. So for a student borrower, you're only going to have a low amount of income. So it, and initially starting off typically, but your balance is probably only gonna be $27,000 if you're an undergraduate student. So there may not be enough time in a long-term plan and the long-term plans run 20 to 25 years. So remember in the income-driven plans, you're not just getting a free ride. You have to make consistent payments over the whole forgiveness term. And then you get whatever's left over at the end forgiven. So it's sort of more like a subsidy than anything else. And if your income is high enough, you're going to wind up paying the loan off and you won't get any forgiveness at all at the end of the term. And that's why that's why the long-term forgiveness is really dependent. There's strategies for how to best utilize it as a borrower. So do you want oh, me to give you an example? <laughs> absolutely. Please yeah, please all do. Right. And if right, you so guys, say, by the way, if you guys have questions, write them in here. We've got Lisa. So feel free to write any questions in and uh, we'll get to them. But please give us an example. So if you had a family come in with uh, two parents and one parent did not work, uh, your your parent plus loans do not depend on, uh, your parent plus loans do not depend on uh, your income. So you can get parent plus loans even if you don't have an income. So in that case, we would recommend that the parent who has the lower income or is a stay-at-home parent to take out the parent plus loans. And then on the back end, if they wanted to enter into a long-term forgiveness plan, they would then have their income be the one that the payments are based on. So if their income is zero, their payments for the length of that long-term forgiveness plan would be zero. But there's a caveat there. 
they would have to separate out their income on their tax returns. They yeah. could not they could not marry file jointly. They would have to marry file separately. So obviously you we we work in, in, in conjunction with the CPAs because that's not something even a lot of CPAs don't really do a lot of that, but um, families don't usually understand what the differences are in how they would file a tax return like that, but it makes a huge difference for student loans. Super interesting. And in that scenario, would that family be, would that be a 20 year, 25 year, or is it, it just depends? So it would be 25 years now currently, but what I was, what, what I'm not sure about and could change depending on that Supreme Court decision is the actual um, generosity of the new income driven repayment plan that's coming out in 2024. There is a potential that the parent plus loans could could be considered undergraduate loans and that you would get a 20 year repayment uh, long term forgiveness on those because technically all the parent plus loans are undergraduate debt. But right now, all the plus loans are grouped as graduate debt. And they're the 25-year forgiveness. But if okay. you have a zero payment, it really doesn't matter whether it's 20 or 25 years. You still could potentially wind up not paying anything back for the debt. So crazy. Which is um, crazy. It's crazy. Stephen, we post all these episodes on Instagram, just so you guys know. But for anybody joining late, this is the Make More, Keep More show. We talk about all things related to money. I'm Ron. My co-host is Dominic, and we have Lisa Gossweiler with us today, who is a certified student loan expert. What's the last, what does the P stand for? In <laughs> certified student loan professional. <laughs> professional. And she is, in fact, a professional. But Stephen, you can grab any and anybody else. You can grab all of our back episodes on uh, makemorekeepmoreshow.com or Apple or Spotify. And usually each episode is posted by Tuesday of the following week. Um, okay, so back to business and our, our guest, Lisa. Okay, so that's one example where you've got a spouse not working, another spouse working. We separate out the returns. Now, do they have to married filed separately for 25 years, or do they just have to do it for the first couple of years? No, because you have to recertify your income on the income-driven repayment plans every single year. Now, during COVID, they, they um, kind of didn't have that happening. You didn't have to recertify your income during COVID. So many people, when income re when payments restart in September, are will still be working from maybe their 2018 or even 2019 certification amount, which doesn't seem it doesn't seem like a big deal unless unless you were in residency then and your income is like three hundred thousand dollars different. So it could be a big deal um, for okay. the restart for the restart. But in another example. Uh, you could do the same thing, but in a public service example, and there are people who make good incomes in a public service uh, profession, but uh, if you were a teacher, you worked for college, you uh, worked for a charitable organization, there are even some financial organizations that qualify, or any of the state, federal, or local governments, uh, then we would look at that parent that had that job description and one, and they could also split out the income the same way because sometimes one parent um, has a very high income and the other one might work in a public service job and it would be a benefit for them to take advantage of the public service loan forgiveness plan. And that forgiveness plan is much more generous than the long-term plan. It only runs 10 years. They would have to make 120 payments while they worked for that public service employee employer. 
And that's a, that's an enormous savings, uh, 10 years as opposed to 20 or 25. Um, what about a scenario, Lisa, where one parent is substantially older than the other parent? Because um, we, we have a couple situations like that where there's a 25, 30-year difference between the two parents. So if the parents have not taken out loans before, and one parent is looking to retire and their income is going to change drastically at that point or that you can organize their income so that it, it's showing up as a much lower income on their tax returns, like if they were borrowing against insurance policies or whatever, that that would definitely be the parent to take out the Parent PLUS loans on because then when they went into retirement, it would be a much different amount of money to certify each year. and they would just then continue certifying their income in retirement. It would be more like a tax than a, than a huge payment on what their income would have been prior to retirement. And do those loans, if the older parent took them, do those loans, you, I believe you said earlier that the private loans go after death, but the, the public loans, the federal loans do not. How does that work? So a lot of the private loans do get it, like included in the states. So okay. they're not necessarily dissolved upon death. The, in the federal, um, I hate talking about it so much, but it is really a benefit of the federal student loans. The, the federal loans die with the borrower and they are forgiven tax-free. Now, that's not always the case, case state-wise, but federally tax-free. There's a few states that still um, tax forgiveness, but obviously There's, it's a much lower rate. Yeah. Does California... Um, I believe California is one of them, but I think of that that's probably, I think that's probably, <laughs> that probably can be argued. They probably will change that. Um, Although Ca California is one of the few states that still lets you write off your alimo alimony payments because we all get divorced out here. Don't, don't come to California, Lisa, if you want to stay married. Well, yeah. And so interestingly, um, yeah, it's, it's the forgiveness aspect that with death and with disability is is fairly significant. And just so that you know, when a parent takes out Parent PLUS loans, uh, if their child passes away, their Parent PLUS loans for that child would also be forgiven. So it's it's not like the greatest thing to talk about, but that no, is horrible. the case. But, yeah. but it's, it's worth knowing. Bella yeah. asks, and she might've gone to law school because she's got Esquire in her name here. What? <laughs> What's your advice for students who graduated during COVID, have not made any plans on beginning payment yet? What's the best approach to tack tackle the loan entirely? So a lot of that depends on the balance of your loan because the income-driven plans, the higher your income is, the less beneficial the plan typically would be. However, if you have an enormous loan balance and your income is either less than that loan balance or very close to that loan balance, then you would want to look at the income-driven plans because it could save you a significant amount of money. Now, I also want to point out, which I don't often do, but the income-driven plans are 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 uh, designed for the for the borrowers to be going for forgiveness, so the public service loan forgiveness or the long-term forgiveness. But if you think my income is going to jump up in like five, 10, 15 years but I would like to have some flexibility in my payment plan in the first five years after I graduated and your income is fairly low then, there's nothing wrong with you starting on the income-driven plan. You just have to be aware that it, as your income increases, you may wind up paying back the debt in, in full 
but you can get some flexibility and have some flexibility in the early years and use those income-driven plans. And I got a question around uh, this. Any, oh, go ahead. If anybody wants to reach out to you, is that cool? Like, are your are your messages open? Can they just shoot you a oh, direct yeah. message or something? All right. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not super. I'm not super savvy on Instagram right now. I have a much. Uh, I have a much more robust presence on TikTok, but my handles are the same. It's Lisa Gosweather eleven, and um, I what, have. Hey, what was there? Hey, what was your uh, handle before we did this <laughs> show here on Instagram, Lisa? I'm sorry. What, was... what was it? It was 11 Wonder Women because I'm a huge Linda Carter fan. <laughs> <laughs> Love anybody, it. anybody that's that age, we all were huge and are Linda Carter fans. Dominic, what were you going to say, man? So given the scope of this show usually, right, make more, keep more, um, and we talk about tax strategies, a lot of what we talk about is small business. It's a little preface to why I'm asking this question. Make sure I'm understanding this correctly. We talk a lot about owning your own business, uh, you know, as one of the best, uh, how do you say it? Not tax shelter. What's the, uh, you, you have a term for it, Ron, which, you know, owning your business, your own, owning your own business is the best possible way to manage your taxes. I, you phrase it differently. But um, when I'm looking at Forbes did a cool article, just kind of like summarizing this pay as you the repay plan. Um, revised pay as you earn and, and did this. And one of the things that I had seen on this that I marked is that they, a family of four could earn up to 62,400 approximately and make zero monthly payments on their federal student loans. Now, of course, my mind goes to, well, if that's AGI, adjusted gross income, then if I'm a business owner, I could conceivably go 10, 20 years with showing less than 62,000 400 in my AGI. Um, and am I reading that correctly? That essentially I could, if I have a good tax person like Ron on my side and I own my own business, for instance, and I'm not saying anything illegal for, for the record, no, just, no, just owning your business. Um, he looked a little, little beady eyed and shifty when he was I did say a little shifty so. there. I, that's just kind of how I look normally, but, um, my, it, am I reading that correctly or is it not based on, I mean, what it, it seems a little too good to be true because achieving the 62, 400 with a family of four and owning my own business seems very doable. Well, so interestingly, you reminded me of what I wanted to say. Yes. Under these new rules. And this is part of the reason why I think that he let the student loan repayment go through because he's trying to get these new IDR rules approved and they're literally in the last like couple days stages. And once those rules come out, he's protected this new IDR plan. And he's also protected any further um, president, any further administration's ability to pause student loans again by doing that debt ceiling deal. So that's a, that's a huge deal because if he hadn't and the student and the Supreme court had ruled against it, he, no, no other president, like through a recession or another pandemic, they might not have standing to be able to pause the payments again. So he wanted to protect that. But yes, under those new rules, um, a family could conceivably send all of their kids to college for free and pay nothing back on that debt. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a huge statement. It is. <laughs> no, but that's really, I mean, so... Uh, like Lisa, you we met from mutual acquaintance that I indirectly trained, but we've always focused on helping families get as much money to go to college from the federal government, if possible, state governments and the colleges themselves. This becomes a whole other 
I don't want to say back door, but we always viewed our job as ending once they got into school or finished up. But now there's this whole other side to things here that a parent can be strategic about. Right. You know, and again, we could argue whether it should or shouldn't be, but frankly, it is what it it's what is. Well, and it's not it's not even that we need to argue about it because this is what they intended on doing. They intended right. on making college accessible for everyone. And it doesn't matter whether you make ten dollars or you make ten million dollars, you have the same access to parent plus loans as everyone else. And students all have the same access to cost of attendance loans for graduate school and the $27, $27,000 for undergraduate. So basically the federal loan system is like, it's like a flat line. Everybody has the same access. And then on the back end, if your income is lower or if you're strategic about how you borrowed the loans, you can get additional subsidies that were not available to you on the front end. And that's really what the whole thing's about. Mm -hmm. um, what's the difference between, Dominic, did that answer your question? It did. And I think it's just, an again, obviously we appreciate having Lisa on there, but I think from the greater perspective of this show, it's also another meaningful way that owning your own business or turning your side hustle into a main hustle or having some form of side business, even if you are an employed person, there, there is some massive repercussions. I mean, that was an incredible statement to say you could go, you could send family of four could send their children to school for absolutely no cost. If you manage your AGI appropriately, like, and that takes what we've said many times on this show. It takes the right advisors. It takes the right plan. It takes a strategy. You can't you probably, I mean, short of you, Lisa, who self-taught yourself into this stuff, like most of us aren't that good at doing that. So you need a team of advisors around you to make sure that that can happen, but it's a pretty bold statement. And so it does speak to what you guys both said at the beginning. And I know Ron's been saying this since this whole Supreme Court thing has come up or since actually since. Biden had mounts this in the first place when Ron went on his first rant about this topic um, <laughs> is that even if the 10 or 20,000 doesn't get approved, the thing behind it actually is potentially more generous. And so when you think about that, I mean, it's it's pretty it's just mind boggling how you could do it. And it really does make college more acceptable. And there's a lot of questions of, you know, should you and shouldn't you and all that good stuff. But it does make it, if you decide to go to college, makes it much more accessible. Yeah, it's crazy. Lisa, what were you gonna say? And then I have a question for you. No, I was just gonna say that, yeah, um, feasibly it could drive the cost of college up as well because if borrowers are savvy enough to realize, the schools are also savvy enough to realize that they can raise rates and the students are still gonna have access to that money and well, not have to pay it back necessarily. Yep. Look, that's what literally made the cost of college go through the roof in the first place. If you track yes. the federal government getting involved in making these loans easily accessible with the price of college, they are directly correlated. No one can argue otherwise. And, you know, and look, we can talk all day long about how ridiculous the cost of college is. I taught a class last night, at least, and my comment was Harvey Mudd, which is the, at least last year, here in California, the most expensive school in the country. For years before that, it was Sarah Lawrence University in the Bronx. But oh, I know. My son went to Iona right next door. <laughs> there you go. But we were like, do you guys ever stop and really think about what those schools cost? It's a really, really nice tricked out E-class Mercedes each year or kind of your entry level <laughs> S-class Mercedes. And it's like buying one for your kid, letting them total it. 
buying another one for your kid, letting them total it, and letting them repeat the process two more times. The loans are here to help. What's the difference between, you said there were four formulas, and, and you know, leave it to the federal government to overly complicate everything that they get their grubby little mitts in. But what's, what's the difference between those, you know, like just at a 30,000 foot level? So each of the uh, plans, there's four different plans. There's uh, ICR, IBR, pay, and repay. And those four different plans, uh, ICR came out in 1994, and it is the least generous. And it's it, the formula is based on 20% of your discretionary income. Okay. IBR, IBR is the only plan um, that older borrowers who still have what they call FFEL loans, that's the only plan that they can be in. And that's the based people. on 50 15% of discretionary income. The new version of IBR is based on 10% and then pay as you earn and repay are both based on 10% of the income. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds. Each of those Please loans, don't. yeah, no, <laughs> each of those loans, it depends on when you took out your loans. It depends on whether you have direct loans as to whether you can get into them. And also it depends on whether or not um, what your income levels are for some of them. Like it kind of caps your payments after you get over a certain amount of income. So two of those plans have to have a partial financial hardship to qualify. But I do want to tell you that their goal moving forward is to get everybody into this new repay plan that they're, that they're pushing. And they're, the plan is right now that they're going to dissolve pay as you earn and people who are already in it can stay in it. But as of July of this year, there won't be any more enrollments. And then they're going to dissolve ICR in 2026. And right now, between now and 2026, people can enroll in it, but there won't be any ICR after 2026, according to the DOE. And that's a problem because that's the only plan that Parent Plus borrowers can go into to be on an income-driven plan, unless unless they jump through a bunch of hoops. So I have a feeling that's going to change between now and 2026, but right now their plan is to dissolve that plan and to dissolve pay as you earn. IBR can't be dissolved because it was an act of Congress. The other ones were all put through executive action. So that's why they can dissolve them. Which makes the, which was my next question, which is, okay, Biden will eventually at some point be out of office and whether another Democrat comes in, but later, eventually, you're going to have a Republican in office. Would, is that something that a Republican could come on on day one and be like, right, we don't do this this way anymore? Or even another, you know, a fiscally conservative Democrat, can they come in and be like, right, next, fun's over, guys, you're done. What are your thoughts there? Is that a vulnerability of parents who are, who are trying to be strategic here? So the, the vulnerability comes in that, once you take out the loans, your your contract your, contra your it's a contractual obligation. So whatever is written in the contract, when you take the loans out, you would you should continue to have access with. I don't think they can do things retroactively. I have not seen a lot of like stomaching for that kind of thing, because that that causes people to go crazy. There's all kinds of legal action then because it was something okay. that was part of a contract. But moving forward, for new borrowers in the future. There may be changes that we can't that we can't predict. Uh, okay. It won't. The IBR plans won't change unless they can get a supermajority in Congress to change them. I seriously doubt that will happen. And yeah, there has to be there has to be some way for people to pay these loans back because the cost of college is so astronomical. 
And it's such a large block of people that are borrowers that mm-hmm. it kind of, it transcends all areas. It transcends all income levels. Like there's borrowers from every walk of life. So it's not really like one set, you know, constituency. Well put. By the way, I, I, do you do you help clients fill out FAFSAs at all, Lisa? Do you, do you play in that space or are you more just over in the loan side of things? So we have people in the group that I work with that does, but in my own practice, I really yeah. will help people fill out forms for for repayments, for like certifications, for public service loan forgiveness and para plus but stuff, but not the FAFSA now. But in order to get access to all of the student loans, you do have to have the FAFSA filled out. The reason I was asking is the federal government this year is changing the formula slightly. It's really not for all their publicity and nonsense. It's actually (laughs) not that big of a change. But what is in fact hilarious to me, and I almost probably needed to see the eye doctor from rolling my eyes as hard as they possibly could because they simplified the form. So I don't know if you even have seen it, Lisa. I'll send it to you. Okay. They simplified it, Dominic, by doubling the number of questions on it and doubling the length of it. And it's like only Congress, only Congress could be like, what are you talking about, bro? It's way simpler. And you're like, guys, it's 21 <laughs> pages and it was 10. And they're like, well, no, there's only 43 questions. There used to be 116. It's like, you guys are dicks. You guys took what used to be individually numbered questions and then you turned around and you went, cool, this is question 43 on your income. It's only one question. Right. But there's 15 lines of information on question 43 that you have to fill out that you guys called one question. So uh, that's why I was asking about, you know, the versions of repayment, because, you know, I don't know that Ronald Reagan was wrong when he said the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> this is so, true. This is a giant circle that they caused and now they're trying to fix. So there you go. By by simplifying it, by doubling the number of questions. By the the way, guys, any of you filling out your fossils, I just have to get this in. Um, When we see them, 80% of them are filled out incorrectly. And it is always in the college's favor. Meaning your expected family contribution, or now it's going to be your student aid index, the number. Excuse me. The number that they assign you, um, it always ends up being higher than it should be if you make a mistake 99 and a half times out of 100. So just be really careful on that because the idea here is Lisa's great at helping you manage your loans and her DMs are open um, so you can reach out to her. But the flip side of it is you don't necessarily want, even if you are going to do an income-driven repayment, you don't want to have to borrow more because you lost free money that you were otherwise eligible for because you screwed up the form. That's that's my little rant. D, before we uh, wrap up the show, do you have any questions for Miss Lisa? No questions, but this has been awesome and and very interesting. I have a 17 and a half year old daughter, so this is all relevant information <laughs> and a seven year old right. coming up behind her, him, her, but uh, it's all relevant. You, Dominic, I did this for you. Not that. There you go. I did it for you because you're my friend. Um, and Lisa's getting call outs in the in the uh, comments here, yeah, so she's she's got she's fans, got fans in there. Be I mean, getting marriage proposals and uh, uh, <laughs> people wanting you to sponsor them to move to the United States of America. Welcome, welcome to the 
Welcome to the ID Club. Yep. Oh, my. Uh, and you'll probably get 10 Ron imposters now now that you're following me, wanting you to buy crypto in the middle of the night. <laughs> By the way, I don't know. I don't know who Baduism is that just joined, but Erica Badu is one of my all-time favorite artists. So um, whoever <laughs> you are, mad respect. Um, and I'm pissed because I'm going to miss her. She's playing at Crypto, which used to be Staples Center. And I'm going to be out of town. But I've seen her every other time she's come to town. And um, anyway, Lisa, was there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't because we were too busy distracting ourselves? Well, no, the only thing I did want to point out is that the U.S. Department of Education, the Biden administration, did not want student loan repayments to start before that new IDR plan was released. But unfortunately, they did not organize things well enough, and they did not get additional funding to get all of their programs enrolled out when when they got their funding approved for 2023. They did not get any additional funding, and this is the reason why payments are restarting without this new plan rolled out. The new, I, that new repay plan will not be out until sometime in 2024. I'm hearing estimates of July. I'm hoping they do it sooner than that because right. what's going to happen is people who are in the regular repay plan right now will automatically get enrolled into the new one. But there's going to be a huge difference between payments in both of those for most borrowers. Mm -hmm. So people would really like to have seen them roll that out before payments started. Yeah, well, and... I, I'm sure from a political standpoint, they wanted to get it done as we roll up into an election year, but still. Oh, yeah. Interesting to know. Super interesting. Well, Lisa, we really appreciate having you on the show. Botoism, I was happy to see you. Apparently, we share, <laughs> we share safe. safe. Um, guys, we will see you next week. Just so you know, we have Lisa. You can find her at Lisa Gosweller 11 on Instagram at Lisa Gosweller 11 on TikTok. And um, you can message her. Can they message you on TikTok? They can, right? You know what? I don't, they, but I, my email <laughs> is on there and I have a direct link to my calendar if they want to ask me questions, but oh, I, but brave. you can ask you're me brave. questions through email. <laughs> I know, and they do. <laughs> you're brave. Um, next week we are going to have, because I'm, Student loan payments aren't the only thing starting back up again. The IRS is starting to go hard in the paint on people that haven't filed their taxes or people that are behind. So we're bringing on our own in-house expert to talk about how to handle the IRS and what to do if you don't, if you owe the money or you haven't filed your taxes in years. It just so happens to be my oldest daughter, most honorable child number one, but um, <laughs> She was, she was a pain to raise. I'm not going to lie to you guys. <laughs> but, but it's great when we just direct that over to the IRS. I'm like, you know what? Why don't you make Ben miserable for a while? And she's actually <laughs> really good at it and has learned some stuff. So she, she's going to be walking you guys through what to do there. Lisa, we really appreciate having you on the show. Appreciate your expertise. Um, Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed myself. And I hope I gave some people some good food for thought. You give us for sure. great stuff. Yep. Saw some, fan, some fangirl and boy comments in there and stuff. Dominic, my friend, I will see you next week. And uh, we will do it again, you guys. And don't forget, you can find all of the back shows for those of you that are asking on Apple, Spotify, Make More, Keep More Show, or just go to makemorekeepmoreshow.com. And we will see you guys next Friday at 8 a.m. Thank you again, Lisa. Take care, y'all. Thank Thanks, you. Lisa. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.